0: Welcome to The New Chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Michael Evans. Thanks for joining me today. It is so good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Michael Evans graduated from the University of Kentucky in 2008 with a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and a minor in Mathematics. He then enrolled in graduate school at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign where he obtained a PhD in Chemistry under the direction of Professor Jeffrey Moore in 2013. His thesis work concerned the implementation and studies of early flipped classroom models of organic chemistry instruction as well as the development of web-based educational technologies for the teaching of organic and bioorganic chemistry. In 2013, Dr. Evans joined the faculty in the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the Georgia Institute of Technology as an academic professional and first-year chemistry laboratory coordinator. In 2018, he was promoted to senior academic professional. He continues to coordinate the first-year chemistry laboratories at Georgia Tech, teaches lecture courses in organic and general chemistry, and teaches the first year seminar course, GT1000. Dr. Evans lives with his family in Georgia and with his wonderful wife and children and a rambunctious dog, Bernie. Please welcome Dr. Michael Evans. Thanks Dr. Evans for joining me today. It's good to have you on. Um, so what have been your longstanding interests in the field of science?
1: So, um, my, you know, I have a, a PhD in chemistry. I've been interested in chemistry for a very, very long time, specifically organic chemistry and, and even more specific than that, organic chemistry education. So mm. I started my PhD, um, in organic synthesis, ended up shifting gears to an organic chemistry education. And I've been uh, very interested in that ever since. Uh, now, my, my day job is you know, general chemistry laboratory education, so I'm also interested in that. Um, basically, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in expanding access to education, uh, improving the quality of, of chemistry education, and using new um, technologies for you know, those, those aforementioned goals. Um, and, you know, and, and interested in organic chemistry more, more broadly. So I, I follow the literature, I try to incorporate the literature of organic chemistry into my courses where I can I try to help students understand that the scientific process we're going through even now is still on some level the same as it's always been. It just uses more advanced tools and methods uh, than we have uh, in the past, more advanced technologies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and just I'm really inspired by Helping students uh, step into that role as scientists or engineers professionally.
0: Okay. Okay. So, there are several questions I could ask you along with that. Um, would you say it's more realistic, given your interest in organic chemistry education, um, would you say it's more realistic to have equal access to education in chemistry or equitable access? What would you say from your experience so far?
1: What is more feasible? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, equitable access is certainly more, more feasible, right? Um, In the sense that uh, I think with the tools we have available, that's, that's actually a realistic goal, Um, right? Uh, With, with things like video and what I've seen really advance over the past, you know, let's say 10 years uh, since I graduated from graduate school are things like uh, interactive, models and immediate feedback open tools that can provide that kind of thing so like Mm -hmm. you take like an online homework system that's undergone this evolution from um well you know it, it started in kind of like a very hacked together professors just building stuff based on you know open libraries or libraries for completely different purposes to it's moved into the big publishers, and now it costs an arm and a leg to get. and, and it's starting to turn over again to be uh, accessible and available for free uh, through through open libraries. And mm-hmm. so it just takes it just takes people to build build that stuff, right? Um, and the the challenge the challenge really is the feedback.
0: Oh, piece, feedback, right? In,
1: in terms of in terms of equitable versus equal, right? I think about equitable as Here's the material, you, you know, you have access to the material, you, it's, it's possible to succeed in this course by watching these videos, solving these problems, et cetera. But if you get stuck, right? If a student gets stuck in a place because of their background or the time they have available or, or whatever, that's where this equitable equal distinction comes in where it mm-hmm. really takes a push from a professor to get them up to the next level, right? Mm-hmm. It takes a one-on-one with a person um, which is, is very hard to achieve um, in practice right now. I mean, it's crazy, though, with COVID, right? Because I think COVID has shown the potential for um, truly, like, insanely broad education. I mean, a story that pops into my head is there's this, you know, it's, it's kind of on my level in terms of like taking my own education to the next level, there's okay. this heterocycles course that this professor at Scripps teaches. And it's mainly for industrial, like pharmaceutical chemists. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil Barron, Phil Barron teaches it. And he had put the lectures on iTunes U and his books, you know, available for $10. A very accessible course, even pre-COVID. Okay. But, but since COVID, he's actually moved the lectures onto Zoom and basically said, if you want the link, send me an email, I'll give you the link. So the next time he runs the course, I'm actually going to be able to join in on Zoom and participate in the chat and actually like be actively engaged and involved in the course. So wow. seeing stuff like that and seeing a guy like Phil Barron, who's world famous, right, um, step up and provide that level of accessibility to his course materials is mm-hmm. inspiring, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's, that's very good. Um, and I'll say just for people who are listening, heterocycles simply refer to uh, molecules that have carbon and sulfur, carbon and nitrogen. Right. So they technically can be aromatic or not. Uh, right. You know, Thiophenes and pyrazoles and all this other good stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, in terms of organic chemistry education, when most people approach organic chemistry, I would say that, and I say this carefully, there's almost a stigma. Totally. Because, yeah, totally. because people have heard. Horror stories or bad stories about organic chemistry. So, how do you, uh, how are you changing the dynamic or how do you approach that dynamic? Yeah, sure, sure. There's so much uh, negative precedent, right? Before so two, you even start the in, start to engage the students.
1: So two, well, okay, so three three things kind of come to my mind. The the first and most general thing is probably trying to connect the subject to prior knowledge as much as I can. So things that students have already done, already seen, um, and, and trying to show them early on in the process, you know, right out of the gate from organic one, you've seen this before, right? So like I do this with stereochemistry a lot. Um, basically this idea that, you know, you're walking around with a pair of enantiomers, you know, 24-7 in your hands and you can think about how stereochemistry works just by thinking about your hands, you already have that foundation Uh Um, kind of a related point is just organic chemistry in everyday life. So it's the motivation for understanding this subject, Um, Uh things like medicines and, um, and and various other applications of organic materials, polymers, et cetera, trying to bring those into play. Uh And then from a kind of like curriculum design point of view, I, I try to, Really expose students to this idea of pattern recognition as early mm-hmm. as go, right mm-hmm. that like there's there's a stigma because that that stigma is driven by people not approaching the subject in the right way right approaching right. it kind of from a memorization driven um, or just like a brute force driven approach and and not seeing and applying the patterns and actually when you apply the patterns it's a relatively small number of uh options available in a given problem right like the number of ways to think about it the number of possibilities is actually relatively small and then you're weighing possibilities in kind of a systematic way um this is I nerd out on it but I liken it to a chess game where oh, yeah. you know when you're working through a mechanism you have multiple options as far as what this pair of molecules can do and you're weighing like what's the the best course of action right Uh, in the same way you would weigh the best move in a given position and you know you're trying to get from the reactants position to the products position um, Mm -hmm. and and reason through that logically so um yeah so those are the three big things that I kind of try to try to do to push through that stigma prior knowledge you've done this before what does it look like in everyday life and then it's pattern recognition and the number of patterns is relatively small and like, let's get those out in the open, very clear, let's assess along those dimensions. So, um, you know, and, and that's, that's a struggle because students won't have seen it before, right? They won't have explicitly seen the patterns. You can't go out there and Google a lot of these patterns in structure and, and reactivity. They're just not out there. They're not in textbooks, you know, they're not in commonly in lecture materials, things like this. Um, but they're the underlying kind of like the iceberg under the water, the, the part of the iceberg that's underwater type thing..
2: Right. Uh,
1: and so and the assessment aspect of it ensures that there's there's some accountability there, right? I don't just say use these patterns, but like, let me give you credit for, like reward you for using these general patterns and recognizing similarities between different situations.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I'm understanding what you're saying. So, in some ways, uh, like you said, just to in summarize what you said, you would say there's an underlying logic behind organic okay, chemistry that if Definitely. you tap, if you tap into it, you can really uh, master the material in undergraduate years. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, so like you said, how do you you primarily focus on the bigger picture? So, how do you maintain yeah. view of the bigger picture? in your career and in your life in general?
1: Yeah, so um, that is a great question. Uh, it's easier said than done sometimes. I mean, right right now it's very hard just because I'm kind of feeling like a headless chicken uh, getting everything done that I, I need to get done on a daily basis. Um, but I do, you know, return to my teaching philosophy from time to time. I just rewrote my teaching uh, philosophy statement, which mm-hmm. is a very broad summary of, you know, my my goals as an educator, my priorities, the uh, activities and and course design that I, you know, make use of to achieve those goals, that kind of thing. In a career sense, that's that's very helpful. Um, I will also kind of uh, revisit periodically the courses I'm teaching and, and how they're going, I look at student evaluations, um, kind of survey students to see how things are going. That's all sort of career um, oriented. As far as life in general goes, I, I mean, um, my, my situation changed a lot when I had kids. Uh, I'll say that too. So, so like, um, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh, right now so they're still very young still going to daycare all that all that good stuff but Mm -hmm. um, they really keep you grounded in terms of priorities right because you've got this real thing in terms of a family to uh, take care of Mm -hmm. and and really put in your priority list and and that's been that's been helpful um, because it provides me with kind of an anchor for work life balance where like when I'm with my kids, you know, my emails off, generally speaking, I'm not working Uh, before about three months ago, my wife was working weekends. And so I would have the kids on the weekend kind of when she was at work. And then she would have the kids during the week Um, or still married and everything, still living in the same house, just not, you know, complimentary schedules. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so and that, that was a great way to kind of anchor things. She's now working during the week. So that's made it more challenging. I'm kind of in the process of adjusting my schedule, adjusting my thought process uh, to uh, kind of recalibrate. But, but yeah, um, and you know, as far as life in general, I mean, you just, you have to take some time to reflect on what things give you fulfillment, what things don't, and then judging. In a, in a career sense, what things that are not fulfilling do I still have to do because of professional obligations? What things can I, can I sort of cut loose? Uh, and those are it's, sometimes it's hard decisions that have to be made there, but um, taking the time to reflect on that kind of stuff is really
0: important to me. Okay, so this is going to be a technical question I'm going to ask you. Um, sure. you mentioned the teaching philosophy. So you know, I'll ask you a few technical questions what would you say is the limiting reagent to student success in your classes?
1: Good question. Wow, that's a really interesting question. So I was thinking about this in terms of the lab context uh, the last time I edited my teaching statement. Mm -hmm. And the thing I've kind of landed on is that it is a, there's what's called an affective dimension of learning, which is the emotional side, right? Um, You have gotta be invested in an emotional sense in learning a topic before anything will stick.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and that's a huge barrier, I feel, for laboratory education, because students come into a laboratory space with feelings of anxiety,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, feelings of, you know, unpreparedness, there's pressure to um, succeed, S- sometimes students don't really know what success looks like in a laboratory environment, right, am I trying to collect data, you know, accurately and precisely, and how mm-hmm. do I do that, I'm trying to learn all these kind of psychomotor skills, how to pipette, how to operate glassware, how to handle Mm -hmm. reagents safely. There's the safety dimension. Mm -hmm. This this affective side, particularly the anxiety that can come along with entering a lab room is a huge barrier, I find, to success in lab courses. And so lately I've been trying to address that. And, and I mean, COVID was just that times a thousand, right? Because I now know, right? health and safety, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, on top of all of these things. And and the fact of the matter is students are not great about distancing in lab spaces because if they're set up to work as lab partners, they want to collaborate with each other, right? And that's mm-hmm. natural. Uh, and so there's, there's all kinds of things going on there in terms of anxiety in lab spaces. And that is to me the number one barrier for, stu- for student success in a laboratory setting. Um, and, and whatever way I can ease that anxiety uh, is something I try to pursue. So like preparatory video resources, videos of me in the lab doing stuff, showing them how to use glassware. Mm-hmm. Um, providing resources in the labs. So QR codes to videos in the labs um, and and various other things. Uh, We've got, I'm I'm putting iPads in the labs now um, so that they can access resources during the lab period. Just absolutely anything I can do to lower that anxiety is um, to me going to provide the biggest benefits to student success.
0: Wow, that's good. So uh, yes, definitely mental health is so important. Yes. Just because you encounter anxiety doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. You just have to realize that you're encountering it. Right. And seek to address it. Would you say that right. experience is the catalyst that allows you to overcome that activation barrier?
1: Definitely. Or, okay,
0: yeah. yes, yeah. There's almost as if uh that's good, that's good. So my last technical question as it relates to your teaching philosophy would be, would you say, and this is going this might catch you off guard, would you say that Learning is selective or specific. Understanding material: if you learn, if you approach material correctly, would you say yeah. it is specific in the chemistry sense or selective mm-hmm. in the chemistry sense? So, mm. just for people listening, just for people listening, uh, selective yeah. normally refers to like functional groups and like areas that you you selectively target. Right. Specific refers to something mechanistically intrinsic that results in a specific output. Right. So would you say, yeah. or would you say our analogy is not tight enough?
1: It kind of depends. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think uh, what's interesting about that distinction is it tends to shift from what I would call specific to more selective as the student gets older. So like... Okay. So like, I'm, you know, you think about general chemistry and introductory where the goal is kind of a, a lot of it is algorithmic, right? I'm taking an input, I'm producing an output.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: you have a very specific, um, this problem solving method is tied to this type of problem, right? So mm-hmm. in the sense of being specific, right? I see a buffer problem. I'm gonna, you know, use this very specific sequence of steps to solve that problem, right? I see mm-hmm. a gas laws problem. I'm gonna use PV equals nRT,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the the problem solving method is tied to the what the student perceives is it's this type of problem. The older you get, ideally, it becomes more of a selective thing, where you can now apply multiple different problem solving approaches to problems that are, in some sense, bigger. Mm-hmm. Right, and so um, you've got you know various say problem-solving approaches that can get you information about various aspects of a problem, and maybe one is more important than another. So it's selective in that sense, right? Okay. Um, But to see the problem holistically, you have to kind of consider all of the various approaches that might be relevant to this particular problem.
0: Okay. Um. So what what would you say is better, selectivity or specificity?
1: Well, (laughs) and the thing is, you need both, right? Because if you're taking a big problem and you're breaking it down into smaller chunks, Mm -hmm. you've got to be able to confidently latch onto that smaller chunk in the same way a specific ra- re, uh, reaction, you know, goes the way it goes 100% of the time, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if I'm setting up a reaction, for example, and uh, I, I'm, I need to know, you know what mass of a reagent to use, I need to be able to like nail that calculation 100% of the time, right? Mm-hmm. I need to be like specific on that problem solving approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're looking from a broader holistic perspective, you need to be able to bring different kinds of approaches to bear on a big, big problem. And that's yeah. more of a subjectivity thing. So you kind of have this, this toolbox, right? And you need to know how to use each of those tools in a specific sense,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you also need to be aware of the idea that you may need to pull out multiple tools for a relatively big problem and use them, in, you know, various proportions, various ways. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. You need versatility. That's, yeah. that's what you said. So how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science?
1: So, uh, I mean, in terms of adaptive, you know, COVID, COVID comes to mind. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah as something where we really had to change uh, our approach. I mean, I love using educational technologies and courses. I love using technologies that are not necessarily considered educational. So like way back when COVID um, started last summer, it feels like an eternity ago. um, I started using Discord for my organic course, which is a, um, it's, it started in kind of the video gaming world. It's a messaging, uh, you know, voice chat, text chat, uh, kind of community building for video gamers tool. And I thought, well, if it can build community for video gamers, maybe it can build build community in organic course. And I wanted something that was more uh, kind of instantaneous than um, like course forums, uh, you know, Piazza and, and those th- kinds of things that are a little bit slower. So. I brought it in and it was a great experience. Um, it, it helps me connect with the students and help the students connect with each other, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's, that's just one example, but I love using educational new kind of educational technologies to help students communicate and then visualize chemistry. Like visualization is a huge thing um, for me, being able to form an accurate mental picture of what's going on in organic chemistry is really important. And so um, I'll try to use you know three D models and and various software tools that enable students to work with models, mm-hmm. uh, even get you know feedback on on um, how they're doing with three D models and that kind of thing. So uh, that's been that's been a big thing. Uh, as far as the lab, as far as the intro lab uh, situation goes, I've. Um, trying to innovate in the types of assignments I have students do, um, trying to be more authentic in some cases,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, provide them with an audience in the general chemistry lab, which is a broader uh, lab for a variety of majors. I'll have students do things that are kind of targeted at other 1310 students, right? So write a report from the perspective of this is going to be shared with a 1310 student later, or like when we're doing a dry lab with Lewis structures, Vesper theory, write a solution guide that will help a student just learning this topic, solve problems related to Vesper theory kind of thing. Um, oh, yeah. Put an infographic together, put a poster together, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Just trying to get them broad technical communication skills, just beyond the level of the kind of
0: traditional uh, lab report. Yeah, and Vesper for those listening, is being telelectron, polishing, or GLEPC-9 home, whatever you have preference of label. So, um, in terms of, uh, finding the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually. Sure. Um, how did you go about doing that?
1: So, I mean, now I can kind of take this back to my
0: graduate school
1: experience where this, there's this distinction in graduate school with research advisors, right? Between kind of hands-on and hands-off. Yeah. And, um, I, the group I started in was very much a hands-on situation um, mm-hmm. you know regular check-ins and uh, you know kind of really trying to guide me in a particular direction and it was just it just wasn't for me um, okay something that I figured out pretty early on that you know yeah
0: yeah <laughs> um, and I it was
1: it was hard for me to take a project in a different Direction in that situation because of the like perceived power dynamic, right, of uh, advisor versus, yeah. versus graduate student. Yeah. My second advisor was very much hands off, and the projects I had, I had almost complete freedom to take them in in any direction I wanted to. So, you know, a lot of our meetings were lunch meetings where we would sit down, catch up, and he would basically say, "What are you thinking?" I'd throw out an idea, and he'd say, "Go for it." And then we just you know we just kind of go from there. I might have some you know preliminary data, preliminary like kind of anecdotal observations of what's going on in our class or or whatever, and we just kind of run with that.
2: Oh, that sounds um, good. That sounds yeah. Good. And
1: so the, the hands-off uh, thing is is something I definitely thrive on. And and actually at Georgia Tech, it's it's a great place to be for that. Um, well, sort of, right? I mean, it's, it's a bit of a double edged sword. So I, I figure out that's, that's what I like. And Georgia Tech does that in some ways very well, and in some ways not, right? So okay, as far fair. as like, yeah, as far, as far as like how I teach my classes, um, and, you know, what kinds of assignments I give, you know, the schedule of topics, a, a lot of freedom within classes to kind of do whatever I want that I feel is effective for instruction. Mm-hmm. That's been, and that's been really nice because I feel like I've been able to create a student experience that's pretty good in the grand scheme of things um, just by doing things that, that I've tried and I've been able to see. You know, I don't have to take someone else's word at this works, so you're going to do this kind of thing, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and sometimes I'll just ignore advice, right? So to like give that's you fair. an example, for a, a COVID-related example. How to administer exams, right? Uh, Should I use a proctoring service? Should I, you know, make them, you know, completely locked down? How should I do this? Based on my prior experience, my instinct was to make them as open as possible and just make the exams um, more challenging or just different in in a way that requires students to really draw on their knowledge. uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the internet's not going to help you, kind of thing. And I was able to go in that direction, and it was pretty successful in the grand scheme of things. You know, even though kind of the message from on high was, "This proctoring service is here; you can use it." You know, there was a bit of a push from administration to go in that direction. Um, in in other ways, you know, schools more handholdy; it's more hierarchical than uh, where I went to graduate school at Illinois. It's it's less; it's more centralized. Okay. So you'll get kind of messages from, from on high, uh, and in in like committee work and things like that, it's harder to um, it's it's harder to have that freedom to kind of go your own way, uh, in my experience.
0: Yeah, I understand. So, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and I would say in some instances, I I'd say in many cases. Uh, having a more open exam that allows for like higher level thinking and critical analysis is a more realistic, uh, a more realistic evaluation of the student's performance. Yes, exactly. Because students typically uh, are, are inclined to collaborate <laughs> on those lockdown browsers and all those other things. Right, right. Yeah. So right. If, if you're just being real, if you're being real. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, that's, good. that's good. Um, so, how do you maintain a balanced life given all your responsibilities and accomplishments? Would you say you are maintaining a balanced life, Dr. Evans? Or I, trying to?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I don't do a fantastic job of that right. at times. But, you know, I, I mentioned the family kind of keeping me grounded, which is key. Um, I do, you know, I do have hobbies I've been really bad about. Kind of following my hobbies and and balancing my hobbies against everything else uh, Mm -hmm. lately, because you know it was it used to be tied to a sense of place before COVID, and for Mm -hmm. me, it to some extent still is because I'm I still coming to work most days, and you know I'm here in the labs doing stuff, Um, being physically in the labs Mm -hmm. kind of puts me in the work mindset. Being physically at home often puts me in the, I'm at home with my family mindset. Um, Mm -hmm. that's definitely blurred though. Right. Since I'm spending more time at home, working more at home. That's been hard. Um, so the the place is a thing, um, in terms of the hobbies, you know, I'm, I I like running, I like hiking. So going out in nature and and just kind of disconnecting has been important. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, playing chess, playing video games, doing those kinds of things, trying to connect with friends virtually, um, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining a social life as best I can has been really important uh-huh. uh, and okay. and that kind of thing. I mean, it's it's way easier said than done. Uh, awesome. and, and, and the thing is, and, and eventually you have to start saying no, right? I'm like, so this is good advice for anyone who's, who's younger where, you know, you may feel like my schedule's kind of empty right or like you get to the end of the semester and it's like what do i do now what do i do like over break to maintain fulfillment or or whatever Mm -hmm. your schedule will fill up uh as you as you yeah as you Mm -hmm. gather accomplishments people start realizing oh you're great for so and so right Mm -hmm. so like oh he ran you know he ran these online exams over the summer and they went great. So let's like draw him in as an expert on this topic and have him to, you know, talk at faculty meetings or like, you know, where some people start emailing you, you know, your, your inbox starts filling up. And so mm-hmm. the time just starts filling up and eventually you have to start saying no. Um, and that's, that's hard because that really requires you to reflect on like, what are my priorities and how do I not say no to something that I really should say yes to um, or vice versa, say yes to something that I should really say no to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think reflection is the key to that, like reflecting on the bigger, the bigger picture, uh, helps you say no, because right. even if there's a little bit of drama associated with, you know, you turning something down, you know, that it's the right decision in the long run.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Specific to your goals, right? Mm-hmm. Right, as relates to your goals, just like specificity as relates to our chemical mechanism. So, you mentioned this uh, idea of place and mindset, right? Um, yeah, that, that's a very interesting dynamic because I would say, in some ways, the places we occupy do affect the way we think and they do affect our mental state and mental health, for sure. Yeah, so it's good to have awareness and be mindful, but um, as we conclude. Um, do you have any advice to those wanting to pursue the field you're currently working in and what is some of the most beneficial advice you have received?
1: Sure. Sure. So the first thing I wanted to say is, um, and it's, it sounds cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway, networking is, is key and take opportunities to network, you know, Um, having a broad mindset is helpful when you're first starting out and, and trying a lot of different things um, is in, in my experience, very beneficial. So like mm-hmm. my CV is full of random things, many of which started and then stopped.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and in, in terms of how I ended up here, it was the result of trying a lot of different things, meeting a lot of different people and, and ending up in What I think is a pretty well-rounded situation um and so net you know networking in terms of meeting people and pursuing opportunities you also never know what you're gonna like um this is kind of a do as I say not as I do situation as I get older because the older you get the more kind of set in your ways you get Mm -hmm. um but you know don't be afraid to to try something even if you're not sure it will be successful um the more you do that the the easier it gets right as you practice failing quote unquote right like pursuing a project it doesn't work out and then you pick yourself back up reflect on the lessons learned and and do it all over again the Mm -hmm. more you do that the more success you'll see right successful people go through these iterations of Mm -hmm. um you know things just are not clicking and then all of a sudden one day something clicks um mm. something i read oh, gosh where did i read it um it's almost like feeling
0: forward, eh? yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah I, um, I think about research in that it's almost like a mill that you can constantly iterating iterating and then like definitely. hopefully and gradually as time progresses something novel or something beneficial or something significant comes out, but you still grind and grind and grind.
1: Definitely, definitely. Um, I was reading a book about the design process and uh, maybe it was Edward Tufte. I'm, I'm, I can't remember, but anyway, um, there was something in the book about the design process and how that is this process of constantly you know, starting out with something that is bad, recognizing it's bad. And then, and iteratively refining it, refining it, refining it. And what we see, you know, coming out of a company like Apple, right. Uh, is the, the shiny, beautiful final product, but that went through so many iterations of this is working. This is not working. And I got to get rid of what's not working and start mm-hmm. over, you know, um, that we don't see it. It's important to keep in mind that that's what that's often what work is really going to look like. There are going to be a lot of days where you're going to produce a lot of crap. Exactly. <laughs> but on the days where you really hit it. And that was my experience in research as well. You know, I'd spend days, weeks, you know, in some cases, months, just producing crap. and then <laughs> All of a sudden you latch onto an idea and it often, it often flows from that, uh, it flows from the bad stuff. As my research advisor told me, uh, it has to get worse before it gets better.
0: Hmm. That's perspective. That's definitely yeah, perspective. yeah.
1: which was good, was good advice. I mean, we were making some pretty radical changes to the way organic chemistry was taught at Illinois. And he said, it it has to get worse before it gets better. We have to see what's working, what's not working and kind of iteratively improve it, so.
0: So I, I have several things I could say on that note. Um, in terms of iterations, you even look at the Apple products. Yes, we had Apple with 10X or X. I'm going to try and keep up with it. But the first iPhone was in itself an iteration
2: mm-hmm. of the
0: last one. Mm-hmm. So even when you have iterations that are not completely desirable, there's still something that can be beneficial from them. That's one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And two... And two um, you made the statement, things have to get worse before they get better. That even has some psychological aspects in that. I've heard people say uh, a, a part of building resilience, a part of the process of becoming resilient, um, falling apart is a part of that and engaging in that falling apart process. So deconstruction before you reconstruct and improve. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's definitely, a, a, that conversation can go on for a while, but uh, it is definitely good to have you on. Thanks, Dr. Evans, for joining sure. me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I.